mean? You're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. In our last episode, we were joined by Dr. Dan Benardot, who is a sports nutritionist. He had so much information to talk about and such great, valuable insight into the world of sports nutrition that we decided to break the episodes into a two-part episode. So this is part two of talking with Dr. Dan Benardot about sports nutrition and the young athlete. Please be sure to check out the first episode if you have not already, as there is great information there as well. But we will move on and continue with our interview with Dr. Dan Benardot. Welcome back to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We're talking today with Dr. Dan Benardot, a sports nutritionist, and we're discussing common myths and misconceptions in the world of nutrition and athletics. We've talked a lot about weight and calories. Let's switch to macro micronutrients and the role of supplements. Is supplementing with various vitamins beneficial for an athlete? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that, Mark. I, I think the best way to answer it is if there's a known biological deficiency. So let's say that an athlete has been diagnosed with iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia. And a food-first strategy has been attempted but did not satisfy iron requirements, then absolutely, I would say a logical iron supplement protocol is warranted. It has to be logical and it has to be organized in a way that you don't create more problems than you resolve. But yes, under that circumstance. I mean, but to just randomly take nutrient supplements without knowing if there's a true biological requirement for them, I would say no. I think athletes should take a food-first approach to nutrient consumption. And there are multiple reasons for this, not the least of which is it has been shown in surveys that athletes who take uh, a broad spectrum of supplements think that their nutritional requirements are satisfied. So they worry less about the foods that they consume and how they consume them. And they very often don't consume enough. And I mean, the supplements that they're taking don't provide the energy that they need, but they think that they're covered because they're taking these supplements. So it gives them a false sense of security. So I think we have to be very cautious. And there are some very good consensus statements from the International Olympic Committee on this as well, where very clearly from a health and performance standpoint, having a, a food first approach dissatisfying total nutritional needs, including vitamins and minerals, is the best way to go. That's exactly the way I was wanting you to hopefully answer that. And not in terms of, you know, the, yes, if there's truly a deficiency, I think absolutely that's the appropriate way of dealing with it, if necessary, if they're not getting it through their diet. But I, I was kind of alluding more towards what I think you accomplished, which is, you know, the person who has a, a counter full on their, in their bathroom of, of various supplements that they just take on a regular basis just to take them because they think that they're going to be beneficial to them, even though they don't, may not know that they have a deficiency or not. Yeah. And, but also, I mean, I think we have to be a little cautious about, let's say that there is somebody who's been diagnosed with an iron deficiency anemia. It's the most common of the nutrient deficiencies that athletes suffer. And there are good reasons for it. I mean, you, if you look at a female athlete and you look at the normal concentration of iron in food, their requirement is about 18 milligrams per day. And if you 
look at the concentration of iron in the foods consumed, you don't really, you would have to eat 3,000 calories in order to get that 18 milligrams. And there are a lot of female athletes who do not consume that much food. So they have less than optimal exposure. Plus they have the menstrual losses, uh, blood, which contains iron on a regular basis. And plus they lose iron. All athletes lose some iron in sweat. You lose a little bit of iron in the urine that you wouldn't normally lose because of the joggling around that athletes do. So uh, iron is a big problem. But the way that it often is attempted to be resolved is also a problem. I mean, it's not uncommon if an athlete is diagnosed with an iron deficiency to be prescribed 60 milligram daily dose of supplemental iron or more because they say, okay, he's low. There's no way they're going to get it from food. Let's give him a 60 milligram dose. That creates problems because if you hammer the system with that very high dose of iron all at once, Multiple problems can occur. One is that iron is a toxic heavy metal if you provide too much to the system. So the body reduces the rate of absorption if you provide too much at once chronically. So that's one problem. I mean, if somebody's got an iron deficiency, you want the rate of absorption to stay elevated so that the person can recover quickly. But if you provide too much at once, you get the opposite effect. Another problem is that studies recent studies are showing that the unabsorbed iron is inflammatory to the colon. And you, over time, you increase the risk for inflammatory disorders, including colon cancer. So, you know, that's not desirable either. Another problem is that iron, as a divalent mineral, is absorbed in the proximal duodenum along with the other divalent minerals. It's a relatively small absorption site. It's immediately after the stomach and before the common bile and pancreatic duct enter the small intestine, which neutralizes the gastric acidity. But it's before that. It's after the stomach where it's still acid and it has, the acidity has been neutralized. It's a very small area where all of the divalent minerals are absorbed. So if you're taking a daily high dose of iron every day, then the iron takes up all the absorption site and you minimize the absorption of magnesium, of calcium, of zinc. So, I mean, that's not at all what would be the desirable outcome here, you know, at all. So I'm concerned about how people are actually taking the supplement. Uh, the studies are showing that if you take an iron supplement once or twice a week, you actually recover just as quickly and you don't have any of the negative side effects because now the other divalent minerals can be absorbed and you don't have a reduction in the absorption rate of iron. So you don't have as much banging around the colon to have an inflammatory effect. So it's not just taking the supplement, but knowing how to take it. I think that's the important thing. Yeah. And having listened to you and others about this topic, it's really changed my approach to iron deficiency and in, in athletes as far as how we recommend doing things. And, you know, a lot of them will have had that approach where it is recommended or they decide to take it daily. And they kind of look at you a little bit weird when you start saying, well, no, I don't want you to take it every day. But they're like, well, but I'm deficient. So I, I need to take it daily in order to get that. And then you really have to explain it the way you've kind of explained it as far as why, why that's not beneficial for them and the potential consequences of taking it daily as far as other things that they may develop some deficiencies in as well. There was a study that was published a few years back that showed very nicely how to distribute 
they, they took a population that had a very high prevalence of iron deficiency, and they tried different strategies with that population to see what would work the best. And what they found was that if you vary the dose and give it a break, you do better. So for instance, if you take 60 milligrams one day, then nothing for a few days, and then take 15 milligrams, and then nothing for a couple of days, and then take 30 milligrams, and then nothing for a few days. And what the effect of that is by not hammering the system with a high dose all the time, you enable a higher absorption rate that's continuous when you finally do eat iron or uh, take an iron supplement. So you, you don't do anything to diminish the rate of absorption and you don't have any divalent mineral deficiencies that are secondary to taking up all of the absorption sites. So there are strategies. How about we just talk about supplements in general? Are they are they safe to take both from a health standpoint, but relevant also to the athlete? You know, I'm thinking of the higher competitive level athlete in college or professional sports. We need to have some concern potentially about banned substances being in the supplement. I know I've dealt with several athletes who have had this negative consequence of taking a supplement they thought had what was listed on the label and then something else was in there and it happened to be a banned substance for the organization that they participated with. How much of a problem is this? It's a problem. I mean, Ron Mann and colleagues published a really nice paper, and he actually had a follow-up a couple of years ago, where they looked at supplements that target athletes. And they found that 25 to 35% of the supplements that target athletes have banned substances in them that are not listed on the label. And now that alone is a problem, but you also get a misattribution of benefit, which enlarges the problem. So as an example, let's say you have an athlete taking a multivitamin, multimineral supplement that advertises itself as being essential for improving athletic performance, but it also contains a banned steroidal substance that's testosterone-based in it, right? But that's not on the label. So the athlete says, wow, look at me. I'm taking this supplement and look at all the wonderful things that are happening. My musculature is increasing. Everything is better. This supplement really works. So other athletes will look at him and go, wow, I'm going to get some of that as well. But it's a misattribution of benefit. They think it's the vitamins and minerals, but it's really the testosterone that's having the benefit. So it's a, it's a little scary. I, I totally agree with you, Mark, that the, we have to be cautious about using supplements as a normal way to satisfy nutritional needs. The whole idea of taking a pharmacological approach, a drug approach, which basically this is, to satisfying nutritional needs, I think we have to be very cautious about. I've kind of thought about that a lot in terms of, you know, when people say, well, I'm going to take the natural approach, I'm going to take a lot of vitamins, and then we're consuming something that was actually developed in a laboratory rather than something that you that grew on a tree or on a bush or in the ground. And it just it seems counterintuitive to that quote unquote all natural approach. Yeah. And it's also, you know, most of these supplements have far more in them than the body can tolerate at once. And what happens if you keep providing these very high doses to the system is one of two things. One is you get a reduced tissue sensitivity to the vitamin which results in what looks like a deficiency, even in the presence of a high dose intake, uh, or you get a toxicity from it too much. You know, neither of those are particularly good outcomes. So eat food. There you go. 
So let's talk about one other vitamin that gets a lot of attention, vitamin D. You know, I've I've been found to be vitamin D deficient. I'm inside most days. I cover with sunscreen when outside a lot. And I, I take a, a supplement for this. Are there direct benefits to vitamin D to the athlete outside of thinking about our bone health? Yeah, I'm increasingly thinking that we're really plants and we really do need sunlight exposure on a regular basis. But I, I think it's a, a little bit more complicated than we used to think it is. I mean, very clearly. Athletes who spend most of the time working indoors are at high risk for vitamin D deficiency. It doesn't matter who they are. Because they're spending so much of their time practicing, training, or competing indoors, they limit the amount of available time that they have to getting sunlight exposure, which is a major way of getting vitamin D. There are foods now which are fortified with vitamin D. So you can get vitamin D fortified orange juice. And of course, milk has been fortified with vitamins A and D for a very long time. There are some of those foods, but it's difficult to satisfy fully the vitamin D requirement without getting some good UVB radiation on the skin. Different people with different skin colors have different risks. It's fascinating. I mean, what we're learning about this. So just to give you an example, populations that are very light-skinned that live close to the North Pole, you know, so the Northern European, etc., populations, their ability to acquire UVB radiation and convert the cholesterol underneath their skin to one hydroxycholecalciferol, which is inactive vitamin D, they're amazingly efficient. I mean, they go outside for just a little bit of time, and with limited skin exposed, they can actually get a lot of inactive vitamin D produced because genetically, they've come from an environment where sunlight exposure year-round was not easily available to them because of the cold weather, right? What's also interesting about that population, even though they can acquire it easily, their conversion to the active form, 125-dihydroxycholecalciferol, is very slow because genetically that vitamin D has to last the whole year when they don't have sunlight exposure. So there's a very interesting genetic adaptation. As the skin gets darker, so people who live closer to the equator with darker skin, it's more difficult for them to acquire the vitamin D through UVB radiation because the darker skin is darker to make sure that that chronic sunlight exposure doesn't produce skin cancer. So it's harder. But the assumption is with them that they get it every day. It's harder for them to get it, but their ability to convert it to the active form is instantaneous. Now think about people who are darker skinned living in northern environments. That's a high-risk population because it's harder for them to get it. And when they finally do, they don't preserve it. They use it up almost immediately. It's a complicated issue. Uh, this is one of the cases where I would say maybe it's a good idea for all of us, especially now with COVID, staying at home and not doing things, to take a 1,000 or 2,000 international units of vitamin D3 as a supplement every day, just to be on the safe side. Also, I want to mention that the upper limit is 4,000 international units. So you would want to stay well below that, but just to be on the safe side to have a, a, an assured daily dose because it's so important for the immune system. For athletes, vitamin D reduces muscle soreness. It improves muscle recovery. 
it has so many functions for an athlete. And of course, you know, if you don't have enough, you increase bone fracture risk because you can't take up calcium as well. So this may be one case where having just a just to be safe, low dose on a daily basis may be a good idea. So I wanted to follow up on something you said there, Dan, because I found that interesting. You mentioned the 4,000 international units as being the upper limit. Is that in a day? Yeah. So then how about, you know, I know some providers do an approach where they'll have patients take a one big giant bolus once a week. What? How about that approach? Yeah, I, I'm not crazy about overwhelming the tissues with anything all at once. But I do know if somebody has uh, low serum vitamin D, so let's say they're well below 30 nanograms per deciliter. I mean, the desirable level is between 30 and 50. So let's say they're in the 10 or 20 range. Then you, it's very important to get their vitamin D status up to normal as quickly as possible. So having a large dose in that circumstance may be useful, but not for very long. You would want to do it for very long. And you would want to measure them. And the second that they get above that 30, then you'd want to dramatically lower the dose to make sure they don't get any toxicity. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss things further about sports nutrition and the young athlete. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We are back and we've been talking with Dr. Dan Benardot, a sports nutritionist in Atlanta, and he has been filling us in on all crucial information that's relevant for young athletes and nutrition and how to best utilize the things that we can in our diet to perform. Is there a perfect food to eat for an athlete? We see, you know, if you pull up any fitness magazine, you'll see the top 10 superfoods. What do you think about those types of approaches or is there something we really should be all consuming? Well, in simple terms, I would have to say that there is no perfect food. The best way to approach nutrition is to eat a wide variety of foods all the time. So whatever you had for breakfast yesterday, have something different today. Whatever you had for lunch yesterday, have something different today because there is no perfect food. And if you think that there is a perfect food and you focus chronically on consuming that food, 
then you'll get a nutritional deficiency invariably because that food is limiting tissue exposure to nutrients that it doesn't have. You should be eating something else to make sure that your tissues are exposed to everything that you require. So I would say variety is key and be cautious about thinking that there's a perfect food. So what about sugar? We hear a lot about sugar. It's bad. Is eating a lot of sugar a concern for making someone fat? Yes and no. I think the concern that if you're consuming sugar in a non-exercise state, I would say, why are you doing that? It doesn't have other nutrients associated with it. I mean, please, you know, why, why in the world are you doing that to yourself? But it's conditional. You know, I, I can't think of anything better for an athlete to consume while they're exercising than a sugar-containing sports beverage because blood sugar is taking a dive when they're exercising. I mentioned that maybe you got three hours to sustain blood sugar if you're not exercising, just normal daily activity. But if you're exercising, depending on the intensity of activity, maybe you got a half an hour or an hour. And so you have to learn how to sip on a sports beverage to maintain blood sugar. And I can't think of anything better for that condition than having sugar beverage, sugar-containing beverage. Now, mind you, the concentration of sugar in sports beverages is relatively low. Just by comparison, most sports beverages have sugar concentration that's 6 or 7%. Orange juice has a sugar concentration of 14%. So, I mean, it's a relatively low sugar concentration. But if a lot of athletes, I say, you should be sipping on a sports beverage, they'll go, oh, no, no, that'll make me fat. Well, you have to put it in the right circumstance. I mean, it will... Yes, you should not be consuming that sports beverage or any other liquid sugar-containing substance when you're not exercising. But when you're exercising, you can't think of anything better. Not only will it not make you fat, it'll probably keep you from becoming fat by preserving your musculature by limiting the production of cortisol. So I would say sugar is conditionally bad depending on the circumstance that it's consumed in. Let's keep talking about sports beverages for a little bit. You mentioned, obviously, that's a it's a good thing to use for exercise in order to help from that sugar load standpoint. But we think about also athletes cramping and an emphasis on that is all sorts of ways that people approach that. We're going to drink more water. We may have a sports beverage. We may take a sodium capsule as a way to counter it. We may load up with some magnesium. We may drink pickle juice all just to try and tackle one particular problem. Do you think that there is a best approach to that? Is the sports beverage really the best way to deal with that? Or how about using those other things in isolation? Well, as you know, athletes who have cramped in the past are more likely to cramp in the future, which strongly suggests that they're chronically doing something wrong for themselves. So some athletes cramp because they're salt losers. They have a tendency to lose a higher concentration of salt per unit volume of sweat than others, and that sodium loss may predispose the tissue to cramping. But I want you to think about what happens when a person is exercising. Okay, so a person is exercising, blood sugar is taking a dive, blood volume is getting lower because of the sweat loss, and the electrolytes associated with blood volume, salt mainly, sodium chloride, is also being lost at a very high rate in the sweat, which is being lost. So you lose water, sugar, and salt. And it's it's interesting to me that some athletes think, I mean, in what universe 
is it okay to lose three things and you only replace one? I, I just that that just boggles my mind that people would do that. So you really need to replace water, sugar, and salt. Now you have to learn how to replace it. What a lot of athletes do is they wait until they get thirsty and then drink a huge volume to uh, counteract the thirst. No. Thirst is an emergency sensation saying you've already made a mistake and now you're trying to recover from your mistake. No. The best way is to avoid thirst by learning how to drink. So you have to learn that the second you start exercising, you know that sweat rates are going up and blood sugar is dropping. So you have to have a sipping protocol that can mediate the reduction in blood sugar and blood volume so that you can stay normal as long as possible. That's the strategy. You never drink too much at once, but you never wait to drink either. You just start drinking as often as you possibly can, a little bit. Mouthful here, mouthful there, as often as possible to keep yourself normal. So it's not just drinking it, it's learning how to drink it to make sure that you keep things going well for you. That's, I think, where knowledge is power there, right, Dan? There's the misconception of the whole thing. Well, potassium is my problem. I'm too low in potassium is the reason why I'm cramping, so I'm going to have a bunch of bananas. You know, that longstanding myth that's out there as the way to approach a cramper. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, you know, what actually is lost in people, Yes, you lose a little potassium, you lose a few, a little magnesium, but it's nothing that, nothing compared to the sodium chloride which is being lost. And if you start adding those substances like magnesium or a little potassium to a sports beverage, now you're minimizing the stuff that you really need in the sports beverage because there's an osmolar limit to what the concentration of substances can be in that beverage which is being consumed, or you'll get a gastric emptying delay, which you don't want. Focus on what you really need, which you need salt, sugar, and water, and optimize the consumption of those, and then you kind of resolve the problem. Also, I'd be a little cautious about focusing on something like potassium, which you know, the last thing you would want is somebody to develop a hyperkalemia, because now you've got a real big problem with the cardiac muscle and so I, I, I'm not for supplementing things that you don't really need. 100% for sure on that one. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. You know, keeping on the line of beverages, I got, I've got one other question I want to ask you about beverages, just in kind of curiosity. The market of chocolate milk is the ideal recovery drink. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's, it's fascinating because chocolate milk, oh gosh, there have to be like 15 studies now on chocolate milk as a recovery beverage. And obviously, I mean, if an athlete has a lactose intolerance, that's not something that they could use. But assuming that there is no lactose intolerance, let's think about chocolate milk and what it contains. Okay, so it has fluid, right? So when you're recovering, you need to recover the fluid. So that one thing is good. It has salt. I mean, the sodium concentration of milk is relatively high, and you need to replace the salt. That's good. Uh, it has sugar from the chocolate, and you do need to replace sugar immediately after exercise. And the chocolate has a methylxanthine in it, which is very similar to caffeine, which is a vasodilator. So caffeine is not just a central nervous system stimulant. It's a vasodilator. So at the end of exercise, muscles tend to be very tight, and it's difficult to get needed nutrients to the working muscles because 
the muscles are tight and kind of squeezing the vascular system. So if you have something that has methylxanthine in it, caffeine or the methylxanthine in chocolate, it's a vasodilator and it tends to enable a better oxygen flow and nutrient delivery to the tissues and enables a better removal of metabolic byproducts from the tissues. It's perfect. I mean, you know, and the studies basically indicate that, wow, it's a really, and it's got protein in it. It's got a high quality protein in it. You know, when I first looked at the first chocolate milk studies, I was kind of a little skeptical, but then I started thinking about it and I thought, hmm, not bad. Looks pretty good. You know, so the studies are confirmatory there. Finishing up here with kind of uh, another one kind of final myth here. It's often described that when you consume or burn 3,500 calories of something, that it will be equivalent to gaining or losing one pound of body weight. Is that a correct way of thinking about it? Oh, no. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, because it doesn't take into account energy efficiency. So, I mean, basically the idea is, this is what a lot of studies do, that 3,500 calories equals one pound. So that if you were to reduce your caloric intake by 500 calories a day, you'll achieve a negative 3,500 calories in a week and you will have lost one pound. But even the, the NIH now has really admitted that this is a falsehood and they, they actually have a very nice way of predicting what the actual weight loss might be if somebody were to reduce their caloric intake because what I mentioned before, you reduce caloric intake, the body becomes excessively energy efficient. So no, you don't lose anywhere. I mean, we're, that 3,500 calories a day was predicted using a bomb calorimeter, which has no adaptive capacity. Humans have an adaptive capacity. It's not the same. So you can't say that because uh, you lose one pound on a bomb calorimeter with 3,500 calories that you'll have the same weight loss in a human. A human has an adaptive capacity. So no, that, that relationship does not work. Dan, are there any resources online for healthcare professionals to find nutritionists who have an interest in athletes that may be in their local area? I think that's, that's always a trouble is finding people who have that interest. Yeah. You know, the easiest way is to go to the website of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And there's a specialty area on uh, sports and cardiovascular nutrition. And you can look up by zip code what people have specializations in that area and certifications in, in that area as sports dietitians. And that would be a very easy way to find out if there's somebody in your area who could help you. Yes. We'll make sure to have that in our show notes for sure. And finally, we have a feature on our podcast that's called the Pearl of the Podcast. It's a time where we have our guests give us a key take-home point about our topic of the podcast. So Dan, what's your pearl for our listeners in the world of sports nutrition? You've given us plenty throughout this whole, but if you had one final take-home. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say two final take-homes. One, more than enough is not better than enough. The idea that if a little bit is good for you, more must be better is wrong. And the second idea is you really need to eat a wide variety of foods to assure that your tissues get exposed to everything that's needed. You also get a secondary benefit by eating a wide variety of foods is that there is potential toxicity in certain foods. So we don't know, for instance, what pesticide may have been used to grow those oats. Mm -hmm. And so if you eat nothing but oats, day after day after day, you may be reaching a toxic threshold for something that you wish you didn't have. But if you have a wide variety of foods, you minimize the risk 
that you might be getting something bad and you maximize the potential of getting everything that you need. And finally, Dan, you're on Twitter and have a website. Can you provide that information to our listeners so they can find you out there if they're looking for more information? Yeah, uh, my website is foodandsport.com, F-O-O-D-A-N-D-S-P-O-R-T, one word. And Twitter, just use my name and you'll find me. And we'll make sure to have that information in our show notes. And if you want another fantastic resource that only a few short months ago, as I mentioned in my introduction, Dan's third edition of his book, Advanced Sports Nutrition, became available. I purchased a copy myself, and it's chock full of great information. It's got some awesome common question and answer parts scattered throughout it that kind of tackles things the way that we've kind of approached the podcast today. It's a great reference for any sports medicine professional I have on their shelf. We'll include a link to that book also in our show notes. And I'd really like to thank Dr. Dan Benardot for his generosity with his time and joining us on the podcast today and shedding some light on many myths and misperceptions in the area of sports nutrition. Please check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com or on your favorite streaming device for podcasts. You can follow us through our Facebook page and our, or on Twitter and our Twitter. You can find us at Ped Sports Pod. We thank you for listening today. Please tell your colleagues about us to help spread the word about our podcast and please leave us a review on your favorite streaming platform as your high rating also helps us become more visible. I'm Dr. Mark Halsted, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halsted, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.